Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Banks are the biggest companies out there. They're borrowing money from us at less than 1% and then lending it out at 3, 4, 12, 19% of credit cards. They're arbitraging. So that's why banks will sometimes sell stuff off their books. That's performing in a variety of reasons. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Pfeiffer will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. I'm happy today to have Scott Carson with me. He is the owner and managing member of WeCloseNotes.com, a defaulted note buying company. He specializes in finding non-performing notes on residential and commercial properties and purchasing these notes for his own portfolio. He's also a nationally syndicated radio host of the popular podcast, The Note Closers Show, which has millions of listeners across the US and more than 130 countries. That's fantastic. So Scott, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim, honored to be here, buddy. Just here to give to your amazing audience, man. We appreciate that. And the way we like to start out is to find out a little bit about you, how you got here, meaning what's your financial journey? How did you get into notes and and real estate related things? So how'd you get here? You know, it's a journey of falling flat on one's face. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So started off like many people graduated with a college degree in business and finance and started working in the the workplace and married. And we bought our first house. And, you know, like many people back in 2001, 2002, we were like, oh, hey, excited to buy our first house. And our realtor's like, you know, it's a great time to buy. You know, you've got great credit scores. Have you thought about being an investor? I was like, yes. My dad owned the local hardware store. I'm like, Tim, the tool man, Taylor, you know, I can, (laughs) I can repair anything. So we bought a couple investment properties around our house. And I live in uh, North of Austin at the time I lived in Round Rock, Texas, just down the street from uh, a computer company that rhymes with hell. You know what I mean? And my tenants moved in, they were all working. And then the hit the fan. A few months later, I got laid off from my job. It walked in and they're like, Hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for working for us. You're, You're now unemployed. 
And at the same time, Dell laid off a lot of their employees, including my tenants. So I went from excited landlord to a deadbeat bar, I guess you could say. We were trying to make uh, six mortgage payments, three first, three seconds on a private school teacher salary. And you don't have to be a genius or good at math to know that doesn't work very well. Oh, man. And so we got rid of the two investment properties. We did a loan modification, our primary, kept it from going to foreclosure. I did any odd job I could do to make money at the time. And we got our assets out of a sling, licked our wounds for a little while. And then about a year later, after getting back into uh, the finance side, it was a banker for JP Morgan Chase and their, their top banker here in Austin and Texas and did really well with that. And a buddy of mine that I knew previously, who'd also been laid off, had started a mortgage company. And this is 2004. And I, I went to lunch with him and a couple of investors that he was doing the mortgage company with. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into the, back into the real estate investing. Yes, I tried to just go off of my own knowledge versus being educated or learning. And you know, I didn't know as much as I knew. So I was a lot more coachable the second time around, Jim. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we were doing mortgages in 30 different countries, 30 different states. I was sitting in the back of room, all these big expos and seminars and really had really kind of a four-year apprenticeship, not just on, in real estate but also the debt space, the note space from a guy by the name of Bob Leonetti and, and a lady named Jamie Kayla. And then when everything hit the fan in 2008, I sold my part of the mortgage company for a buck because that was all about it was worth. And then I just went full time into just starting to dial for dollars and, and call the banks that we'd originated for to buy that discounted debt that they now had in their portfolio at a big discount. You know, it was a, 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 everything hit the fan again in 2008, nine and 10 for a lot of people but I was on the right side this time. And then got divorced in 2009. And then in 2010, as I started to teach other investors how to do this, as we were buying a lot from my portfolio, I sold everything I owned in Austin, Texas, and thought I'd take a 30-week trip around the country to go to a lot of baseball parks. And that led to three and a half to four years of nonstop travel, pretty much. I was like to joke, I was the only homeless guy who owned 300 homes. <laughs> <laughs> And then just had just had a great time. That's kind of how I became the note guy. I would go from like a real estate club or real meeting and networking group and people like, hey, aren't you that note guy on YouTube? Aren't you the YouTube guy that talks about notes? I'm like, yes, I am. And so fast forward 13 years since 11, 12 years since then, and it's been an amazing ride. We bought over a, a billion dollars in distressed debt on residential commercial properties. And our big goal has always been to get the, the bars back on track. We've modified a ton of borrowers out there. As we make the, the running joke, we're making America great again, one default to borrow at a time. And absolutely, I will tell you the salivating at what's going on in the market right now, as we see a ton of opportunity over the next 24 to 36 months, it may not be exactly like it was, you know, 2008, 9, 10, but there's still a lot of opportunity for what we're doing now. So that's a little about me and my financial journey. That's fantastic. You know, I, I have a couple of questions. And, and the first one, it always amazes me. You're not the first person on here who has failed or not had a very good experience their first time around in real estate and then goes on to have amazing success. So why did you go back into it? You were in it and it didn't go well, right? As you said, you do all that stuff to get out of it. And why, why go back in it? What was your what was your thinking there? You know, I think you learn more as you get older. You realize that I think we become a lot more accountable to oneself and realize that, hey, I didn't know. I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, you know, difference between being in your late 20s to your early 30s is that there's a big difference there and in, in maturity. Also, I think the biggest thing is I, I started surrounding myself with people that were in that space and I started learning the right ways to do things. And plus, I knew that getting where I was at in the rat race wasn't going to get me to where I ultimately wanted to be. I mean, rich dad, poor dad entered my life. Think and grow rich. A, a lot of that mental aspect of things started really 
coming into my life. And, you know, it's like you, you, you shared your story in my podcast of how you did not like being a landlord. You weren't good at yeah. it. You know, I didn't like, wasn't good at it. I thought it would be, I thought, you know, HGTV was the Bible and we all know that's a big foss, you know, it's a, right. it's a facade of what real estate investing is. So I just, I think just wanted to do better and realize, okay, the second time around, I'm much more coachable. I'm not afraid to ask questions and yeah. I will you know, see opportunities there when a lot of people would just to give up. And I'm never, I'm not a quitter, I guess you could say. I, yeah. I've got my work ethic for my parents. I saw my parents, especially my dad fail at a few things, but keep going and keep striving forward until he found success. And so I think it's, I'll say that an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur is not born. We're definitely made. Yeah. You know? Well, it's always interesting to me. Like I said, that people struggle and then they just keep at it and you learn from your failures and then you become a success. And it's always interesting to me. And then you also said, you know, you started buying notes in 2008, 2009, I think. And that was, you know, after the big crash. So I remember that time and people were afraid to do anything in real estate. So what gave you the courage to say, okay, now I'm going to really go in and start buying up notes when everybody else was, I mean, you know, that's what Warren Buffett says. When everybody's fearful, that's when you buy. But how did you get the courage to do that? So in the note space back at that time, it was like ridiculous. Like I would see, I started contacting, I had two mentors that taught me the note space. And I had one guy who was a money partner of mine who came to me and said, Scott, now's the time to act. I made a ton of money back in the 80s in the Resolution Trust Corporation or the savings and loan scandal buying debt. I had a mentor, Bob and Jamie were like, oh my God, now's the time to buy distressed debt. When everybody else was like, oh, the sky is falling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I was like, my mortgage business, had just kind of stopped overnight. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Sit here and cry in my milk or am I going to pivot to take a, you know, take advantage of the opportunities in the market? And I think a lot of investors screw up that way. They get so ingrained into doing one type of activity. And when the market dries up or changes, you've got to be flexible and pivot. And I didn't want, you know, it was an interesting time, but I started getting lists in from these different lending institutions and banks. And I would ask them like, what are you looking for? And they would literally want like pennies on the dollar. I mean, I was like, okay, I can buy a Miami beach condo on the water for five to $10,000. Now it might take me a year to, to 18 months to foreclose back then, but I know the value was there. I didn't mind. Okay. Putting a little money in to write it out and, and work to get it back on track. And so that was the thing that really attracted me. I was like, look, I'm finding deals. I was finding apartment complexes at 40, 50 cents of what was owed that I could take over and either finish the foreclosure off or you know, cash for keys and then take over the, the ownership or the management of the property and get it retrenchified and then sell it off at the auction when we finished the foreclosure. There was just it was just not stupid the amount of deals. You know, I bought my first note, which was a piece of crap Michigan property for 500 bucks using my debit card. Okay. <laughs> and I sold it for scrap metal the next day for like 1500 bucks. I was just seeing stuff that was just stupid in the price point. And I was like, okay, let's, let's dive into it. Of course I got into it and started sharing my deals and marketing it on the early days of Facebook and YouTube back in the day. And there's some, there was, you know, some videos of me like walking around an apartment complex here in Austin was like sweat pouring down my face in 110 degree weather. But I'm like, here's the deal. It's worth this even right now. Here's what I can pick it up for. It'd be stupid not to pick this up and ride this out. And right. that's just what I did. I kept having that. I, I say Jimmy Buffett, but Warren Buffett in my, <laughs> my ear talking about, you know, just you, you got to do the opposite of when most people say when people are running one way, run the opposite way. You know, when there's blood in the water, go towards it. And just figure out a way to do it. And that's and that was yeah. the thing. You know, there was I saw a ton of opportunity and I just started dialing for dollars and, and putting a work ethic into it. You know, I flipped my first, like I said, my that little first property in Michigan for a thousand know, dollars profit. 
The next one, I flipped a uh, an eight unit apartment complex in San Diego, made thirty five grand wholesale in the note to somebody else. I flipped a sixteen unit apartment complex, the note that wholesaled it and made a hundred grand on it. I bought some non some performing notes that the bars were a little kind of we call it scratch and dent bars where they make a payment and miss a payment, make a double payment, get caught back up. But it was like a twenty percent yield. I was like, this is stupid for me not to buy this. I'll, I don't mind them missing a payment here and there as long as they're making it up. They've done this right. for twenty four months. It's like let's do it. So that's kind of a mindset. It was just the numbers made sense. And this is not a get rich quick scheme. This is something I'm going to build wealth with and, and see the opportunities over a longer period of time. Now, most people think in the note space, it's like 30 years to finance and stuff like that. That's not the case. Most of our deals are like 24 to 36 months for the most part. I just surround myself with people that were new and knowledgeable. And I just, I got to work, rolled up my sleeves and got to work, Jim. That's great. That's a great story. So I want to back up now to the basics. What are notes? And I assume there's different types of notes, right? Just like there's different types of real estate. So can you start with what are notes? What are the different kinds? And why would I invest in this? So everybody's in the note space already. You're in the note space. You're just on the wrong side of the payment string, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Whether you got a car, a mortgage, medical debt, credit card, student loan debt, everybody's in the debt space or the note space. You're just, like I said, you're, you're making payments versus receiving payments. And that's what we are. A note is basically, it's an IOU. It's a debt. If you've got a mortgage on your house, that's a, a note, as we say. And we buy that those notes. I only buy notes that are backed or secured with by uh, real estate, either residential or commercial. There are first liens, which are your, like your senior liens. And then there are second liens, which are junior liens. Like if you have a, a first on your house for 80%, and then you've got a second loan for 20% to finance the whole thing. I only focus on the firsts. There's institutional debt that's originated from a bank or a, a fund of some sort. And then you also have owner finance notes, which a lot of people think that's what the notes are. It's just owner financing where you are the bank offering terms to sell your property or asset. You have other products. You have debt on commercial loans and you know single family homes, hotels. I mean, we bought debt even on trucks, you know, and repoed the truck for a bit, you know, and drove it around for the, the country for three and a half years and sold it in, traded it in after I repoed. But for the most part, you're buying a mortgage. It's a, a payment stream of either 240 months, 360 months, a 30 year, 20 year. And, you know, you can buy performing notes, which a lot of people like. And I think your audience is it's probably more inclined to buying something that's performing. Either has been performing from the nonstop or where we make a lot of our money and get the biggest bang for a buck is we'll buy a non-performing note on a, a property at a big discount, 50, 60 cents on the dollar of what the value is. And then we make our grace returns, Jim, by then working with a borrower to modify that loan, get them back on track of some sort, work with them, start making payments on time. If they do that, that's great cash flow. We can either turn around and sell that note back to the marketplace, you know, back to banks and investment funds. A lot of times we've sold notes back to the banks that sold us the stuff. We just were able to work with a borrower or we'll hold it for cash flow for an extended period of time if the return makes sense. So that's kind of the big thing in the note business these days. It's kind of that the performing paper or the non-performing paper. Of course, if the bar doesn't play ball with us, we, as the bank, have the same rights to foreclose or start the legal process to foreclose in the bar. And then obviously the property secures the note. So if we foreclose, we take the property back and they can either keep it, rent it, or sell it off on the open market. So performing means that someone's been paying consistently and non-performing means they haven't been paying consistently. So I guess I understand why there's a discount for the non-performing, right? That makes sense. They're not paying or they're paying intermittently. So the bank just wants it off their books. They sell it to you for some kind of discount. So why 
would you buy or why would a bank sell a performing note? So a bank will sell a performing note in, in some cases where maybe it's a, they don't have all the correct paperwork involved. Maybe they're missing some documents. Maybe there wasn't a truth and lending statement signed or signature not filled out. We call those scratch and dent loans. Made out the borrower's bad. It's just they don't have all the paperwork specifically to go through. It also depends on what's going on. We had a bank in San Antonio that they had offered a specific type of lending program to their neighbors and people around them. And they you know, they didn't want to be the bad guy in case they had to foreclose. So they sold every loan that was in that type of lending platform. So we bought a portfolio. It was a mixture of performing and non-performing notes. And get this, the yield on the performing notes was a 17% yield straight off the, off the books, which is crazy for a performing loan that's been performing the entire time. Usually, a performing note is going to sell somewhere around 85 to in the mid-90s, whatever the balance is. And of course, it's not a big discount there. But like I said, I like that's not a bad place to be. If your money's making nothing and you like that type of passive return, you know, banks are the biggest companies out there. They're borrowing money from us at less than 1% and then lending it out at 3, 4, 12, 19% of credit cards. They're arbitraging. So that's why banks will sometimes sell stuff off their books that's performing in a variety of reasons. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So how do you service the notes then? If you if you buy a note, I mean, do you ha- do you pay someone to service it for you, and you're just the owner? Actually, you go out and collect. You knock on door every person. I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking. That's one of the beautiful things about the note business. Is I'm in Austin, Texas, and I buy debt in about 30 different states. In most states, you need to have a licensed debt collector or a licensed servicer to collect on your behalf to collect funds because you're dealing with fair debt collection practices and the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Some of these big things have popped up over the last. Uh, 13, 14 years. So yeah, you have we have a servicing company that if it's a performing note, they charge us $20 to $25 a month for a performing note to collect. If it's a non-performing note, they charge us $90 to $95 uh, per note because they're doing more aggressive outreach, trying to get the borrowers back on track, calling, sending you know, uh, certified letters to get the bar in place. So that's the, that's the great thing is I'm not having to do it. I basically direct my servicing company to do what I want to have happen. You know, they've got to follow specific guidelines, but like, Hey, I'm willing to offer the borrower a modification or these type of terms. You know, when you talk to them, here's you know, here's A, B, or C plan that we're willing to offer on the phone. Let's see if they'll go that route. I don't have to negotiate. I don't have to listen to the country western songs that borrowers are telling. It's a very black and white business oriented aspect of things. And then I got to get an email or a phone call, and we'll negotiate back and forth the servicer what we want to do, and then we go from there. And then they just start paying on time on a monthly basis. And if they won't play ball, I mean, you know, pay, you know, stay. Then we then we leave and work with them in some sort of liquidation. Like, okay, you can't pay. You don't have somebody to come and take over payments. You don't want to modify. Let's do you owe more than the property's worth. Well, let's do a short set. Or, hey, we'll give you cash for keys. We'll give you some money and you'll sign the property over to us and walk away. Or we'll reduce, we'll offer a reduced settlement for you to pay off the loan, you know, you know, 80 cents of the dollar. So it gives you some leeway and go from there. So I don't want to say it's like a choose your own adventure. You remember those books back when we were growing up? It's kind of like that. You never know which way it's going to go for the most part, but 
The great thing is on the front end side, we are able to do so much due diligence to kind of get an idea how friendly the bar is going to be. We get servicing notes from the previous servicer to see, okay, the bar was friendly or the bar has not been responsive or they've been ugly to the person calling before, you know, tell them to pound sand or, you know, cuss at them. We know that's going to be a, a rough bar. But for the most part, I'd say about 80, 85% of the, the deals that we deal with, the bars want to stay in their houses and they're willing to work with it. It's, you have a few bad apples. You know, we find a lot of stuff by doing some social sleuthing, Facebook stalking. Like I had a bar one time on there who had said when she talked to the bank, she wanted to do loan modification. But when we looked at Facebook, she posted, oh, do I pay my mortgage this month or are we going to go to Disney World? We're going to Disney World. I'm like, yeah, you're not going to qualify for a mod because you just pit my mortgage on uh, freaking Mickey Mouse (laughs) cupcakes and Mickey treats. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that we get. Of course, we evaluate the assets. The one thing that some investors have a hard time doing is that we don't get to go inside the properties because there's you know people living in it most of the time, unless it's listed on the MLS. But you can tell a lot about a property by the servicing notes, the way the property looks on the outside. Are they taking care of it? You know, verification of employments, calling them to see if the bar is working somewhere, and then sending door knockers by to see what's going on as well. So, how do you value the debt, and how do you underwrite a note? Great question. So. First and foremost, we got to get a value of the property. You know, we got to know what the, what the property's worth. And then we look at, okay, what does the borrower owe as far as their unpaid principal balance? It's called UPB in the market. And then we look at their legal balance, which is their payoff amount. And usually we're buying debt where the borrower owes more than the property's worth. So then we just look at the value of the property. Okay, what's the property worth? It's worth 100, they owe 125. Okay. Then we look at roughly what we would offer for the note, taking into consideration what their monthly P&I payment would be. And then compare that to market rents. So a quick basic look is we take their P&I payment times 12 and divide that by our offering price. That number, we usually have to see somewhere in the mid-teen to 20% range just on that flat number alone. And that's kind of our initial offer. And that may be 50 cents on the dollar, maybe 60 cents on the dollar of the value of the property. Now, that number may be at 30 cents or 40 cents of what's owed, but that gives us the flexibility if it says we're buying it at a discount to be able to work with a bar to give for, forgive debt or forgive, you know, they're a year behind. So, you know, one of the things that we might negotiate with them say, okay, for every $100 you pay above what you owe, we'll forgive you 200 Or if you make a payment, we'll forgive two payments so you get back on track. And so there's some of those scenarios, obviously, the value of the property. we got to look at the debt, look at their payment streams, what happened. But then we also look at the collateral file to make sure we have all the paperwork there so that if we need to foreclose, we have the ability to foreclose. So it's Kind of a three-pronged approach, but it's that's the first thing. Uh, you know, taking a PI, if it's less than rent, which most of the time it is of, of what market rent of a property would be. Okay. Can they make their existing payment? Get back on track. Can they pay some extra? I mean, that's one thing that most people think is that, oh, they haven't paid in a year and a half. They got to come to the table with full 18 months. We always try to get have them bring about four months to the table, half of that down at the modification or trial payment period time, and the other half spread over 12 or 24 months. And so it's just running spreadsheets to figure it out. I mean. I mean, I'll give you a great example. We got a tape of 900 assets last week. I made an offer 130. I have 11 that were accepted at my bid offering and another 50 that were countering back and forth on the others. They, they want something that I'm not willing to pay. And you're negotiating with the banks then on all of these. And are yep. these the, the major banks that, you know, are just doing mortgages or these other, these are different banks? Different variety of banks. I don't waste my time with the evil five, Bank of America, Chase, City, Wells Fargo and, and Citibank, or you can even throw one West in there too. They're just too big. I mean, they'll sell a portfolio of notes of 50 million, but they're not going to sell it at a price that makes sense for me. So we buy from a lot of regional banks, a lot of investment funds, some insurance companies, some REITs, 
out there. They've bought a big portfolio and they want the top 50% was they want, but the bottom 50% they're willing to sell. That's, you know, at a loss sometimes just so that they can recoup it and get move, get moving on. And it leads to a lot of opportunity for me having relationships in local markets that I can come in and say, Hey, you know, we buy this at a big discount. What's our, what's our strategy? Is it to get them re- reperforming or we should try to, you know, pay them off, you know, give them five grand to walk away because that's what it would cost us to foreclose. Or do we foreclose and just take the asset back and sell that at a profit? Okay. So what is the... Um, well, I guess first, tax advantages. In real estate, we're used to depreciation and passive income and all that. And this is a different type of income you're receiving, right? This is a portfolio income, basically. So you're taxed. How are you taxed on it? So if you foreclose in a year or you do a loan modification, a loan modification, you're going to be a short-term capital gains on that stuff. If it's a if your modification is set for after a year, it takes a year or more to foreclose, and it's a long-term capital gains tax. So that's the big difference there. We don't usually like our deals to be less than a year unless it's just a slam dunk deal. And a lot of people screw up and say, oh, I want, to, I'm going to do a loan mod immediately. I'm like, well, well, you don't want to do a loan mod immediately because that's a taxable event, a tax on what we modify the loan for. So we do a trial payment plan for 12 months. And then at the end of 12 months, then we'll modify it to make sure it's a, a long-term capital gains. And then it's just on you know, income coming along the way, the payment stream. We're forgiving debt. So we're right. We're 1099 debt off all the time. If we forgive a mortgage or we adjust the balance, we'll 1099 the borrowers for that forgiven debt that writes off our profits, stuff like that. So yeah, you don't get the depreciation on an asset unless you take it back and then go from there. So our portfolios are always a mixture of those kind of three long-term, short-term with the note stuff. And then if you're taking property back, then you have the right to come in and start depreciating that stuff off. Okay. So... How do investors get in on this? Do I need to do what you do and go start talking to banks and, and offering everybody to buy up their loans? Or is there a way for me to be passive on this? Oh, yeah. There's totally a way to be passive. I mean, we've got investors that invest with us on a regular basis passively. We're paying them a quarterly payment on stuff as we're doing all the heavy lifting. You know, Our deals are you know 24 to 36 months. and We're giving them above average return. And then we handle all the headaches. There's also plenty of other investors out there you can lend on. What's great about the note business is just not buying debt. Many people can lend their money out in like hard money loans, making loans and stuff like that too, and make a, a good return on investment. But on the distressed note space or the performing note space, there's a ton of investors out there, different REITs out there too, to help you that will take your money and give you a good return while they're going out and doing all the heavy lifting and making above average returns. First of all, are there funds like you invest in? If, if I invest passively in this, am I yep. buying into a note? Am I buying into a pool of notes? Is it I'm buying into performing or non-performing? Great, votes? great question. There's you, that's one good question you have to ask. If how that investor or that fund is performing, there are some funds that are just chasing non-performing and they're looking to get stuff re-performing or liquidating the portfolio after 90 days. If liquidating the notes, if they're not, they don't get re-performing in 90 days. You know, we buy it at 50 cents on the dollar, sell it for 10 percent markup. They won't respond in 90 days, and we're making a 40 percent annual return on the portfolio. And we're able to give. You know, investors a six to eight percent pref rate plus a, a share of the back end. There are funds that are just chasing performing notes, and you're going to get a little bit lower return on that because it, usually they're buying performing notes from the bank. It's at a lower interest rate and lower ROI because that borrower is just paying at the mortgage rate. So always ask what are they investing? Is it, if it's if it's a non-performing, they're going to be a little bit more aggressive on some stuff. You can get a higher return on that if it's, per, it's just a flat performing portfolio. Whether it's an individual investor buying an individual note or a fund you're going to have a, a flatter rate return on that, a little bit lower rate because it all depends on what the yield is. But that's like a great question to ask the investor or the fund that's handling the deal. And you, you said maybe a 6 to 8% plus something on the back end. Can yep. you explain 
how long am I going to cash flow at the six to eight percent? And what is the back end? What what's the upside then? Yeah. So usually what's how we've had our fund structures basically we're given a, a six to eight percent prep on the front end, depending on what's being invested. And then we're giving twenty-five percent of the net profits on the back end. So if we we're paying a quarterly payout of, of you know six to eight percent on their money, and then at the end, every year we're looking at things on the profit side, and then it's paying off, like I said, a 25% split of the back-end profits for that year back to our investors. So they may see somewhere around a... Uh, we always try to shoot for it where it's a, somewhere between a 12 and 50% combined ROI to the investor. Okay. And PREF is preferred return. So that might not always be paid out. But if you miss the, the PREF, you would pay that back later. Right? Exactly. Okay. So in non-performing, not every borrower is going to get back on track. And that's why we have a mixture of buying re-performing loans that we're getting a good 10 to 15% return on where somebody's already done the work, but they're willing to sell it out and liquidate it. And then buying non-performing stuff and usually states that have less than a 12-month foreclosure process that we can you know, either foreclose or get a deed and loan from the bar in a fast. We avoid long foreclosure states like uh, New York and New Jersey, which can take two to three years. It just doesn't work well to have to hold, have money tied up in asset. You're not seeing anything right. in at least 24 months. So we're, we like... 12 months or less to foreclose. I, you know, wish I was buying in Texas, but Texas, with it being the fastest foreclosure state of 30 days, it's often priced higher because it's a faster foreclosure state. So we we find a lot of value in buying assets in Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, that side of Crook, or I'm sorry, Cook County, Chicago, Missouri, Kansas. And that's that's the great thing. We like to target assets that are like between 50 and $250,000 in value. We don't usually go above that unless it's a specific asset we have an understanding of. Because that first-time home buyer, especially when they're underwater notes where the borrower owes more than the property's worth, we really hold all the keys to the deal. And with being the bank, we can really do some good in working with the borrowers or offer them some money to walk away. So it's it's a true win-win for the most part. But that's the we've always found the biggest bang for the buck is in that price point. If you're buying performing notes and higher valued assets, that usually the returns doesn't doesn't really make sense long-term wise for you. And how does a passive investor figure out who to invest in? You know. So one of the things in our community, left field investors, we're always trying to find the right sponsors because when yep. you're investing in real estate, that's really the most important part. Like who's going to take care of your money? Who's going to manage the asset? Yep. So how do we find sponsors in this area? And should we find someone who has a fund so we can invest in a pool of notes? Or are we looking for someone who will let you invest in individual notes? And another, I know there's a lot of questions at once, but how long should we expect our money to be gone before we start getting it back? So if it's performing, if you're buying, investing in performing, so you should start getting payments quarterly on that. The performing portfolio, it should be generating cash flow that you're getting seen on a quarterly basis, at least. I don't usually, you may see some people pay monthly and that's totally fine, but usually quarterly is would be the, the per minimum aspect of that. If you're looking for who to d- deal with, when you're talking with people, I always ask, you know, what's your experience? And in the note space, it's different than like the fix and flip or the apartment space. It's vendor driven. So it's always one of the big questions I ask them when they call me and they want to buy notes. I'm like, okay, who's your vendor? Who's your servicing company? Who's your attorneys? And their names that pop up on a regular basis, like, okay, that's a good person. If they say, ah, I don't know, that's not a good sign. That's usually somebody that's brand new. You may want to avoid because you don't want your money going through the learning curve. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you want to deal with somebody who's been through an up and down cycle as well has been around for a little while. So that's that's the important thing. How long have you been doing this for? What's your background? What's your, I like to say your oh clause. You know, what happens if the bar doesn't pay? What's your strategies, A, B, or C? In the note space, you can't have just one exit strategy. You've got to have two or three because if the bar doesn't pay, then you got to be prepared to go the legal route. 
what you know what's your average cost to foreclose what's your a- average holding costs that you're rolling into the thing because there's servicing costs and, and workout costs involved with every deal so those are some questions to ask how many deals you've done like i said who's your team do you have any references it's always a great thing to ask who have you invested with and then i always like to ask what happened when deals went south because we all know deals go south at some point you know and that's an important thing to ask people hey what did you do what happened people don't necessarily I guess what's the word? People understand things go south and they're okay with it. They just want to know that somebody has a plan of action or a plan D. It's what happens and how soon can I get my money back? And, you know, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And that's what I love so much about notes. If you're buying notes right, you know, at the right price, if even the worst possible thing happens, you could always foreclose or sell the asset off to somebody else and get the investor's money back. It may take a little bit longer than expected because of the market and stuff like that. Like, like I gave you a great example, COVID, when we couldn't evict or foreclose, for a year, that's a bit of a kick in the shins a little bit. But the idea is that you still see property values appreciating. Like, okay, worst case, hey, we're just going to foreclose. The borrowers won't play ball with us. We'll foreclose when we can. And we'll come out smelling great at the end with a higher profit margin on the back end. It won't be a performing asset, but we're going to liquidate this and make more money on the back end. So you always got to know what's gonna, what's the plan B in case something doesn't go right. So during the pandemic, did you have cash flow issues on, on those loans then? Because you couldn't evict, but were people still paying or are they still trying to work it out? Oh yeah, that's the, that's the beautiful thing is yeah, we still had plenty of people that paid on time. We still we, those that didn't or couldn't, we were in in cooperation with them as far as getting on the phone talking about and you know in some cases you're like hey there's a program in your area. Go fill this information out, go to this church or go to this group to get back on track. And those that just didn't pay, didn't respond, we know those those are going to go to foreclosure. And so that's right. when we start like listen, we know you're not paying, you're not responsive. We'll give you five grand a walk. Let's do a, a deed and cash for keys. And that's why I always tell investors it's good to buy a couple assets and invest it in a portfolio or a fund because then your risk is leveraged over multiple assets. I, and this is one thing that we teach too. It's like, oh, I'm going to spend 500 grand on one asset. Well, how's that bar going to perform with that half a million? Or for half a million, I could buy half of Columbus. You know what I mean? <laughs> have my risk spread over a bunch of assets. So that's an important right. thing. Hey, you know, how many, you know, what's your price point is all that leverage on what that does. That one decision maker makes, that one bar makes, or is it spread out, your risk spread out over a, pro, a portfolio? And what, what's the future? You you said that there's a good opportunity coming up in the next 24 to 36 months. Why is that? And, and what are you seeing? So I see it being great for the next 24 to 36 months. It's already happening. We're already seeing a lot of phone, getting a lot of phone calls, emails, portfolios from banks and lending institutions coming across our desk. And we usually see notes six to 12 months ahead of your traditional real estate investors because we're on the debt side. Of things. So we're already seeing an increased amount of distressed debt hitting the books or banks being willing to sell stuff that they haven't sold in three to four years. And so that's what I'm excited about. I don't want to be doom and gloom, but there's a lot of opportunity because we're buying, we're seeing stuff at greater pricing discounts than most people have seen in a long time. And we foresee this being a while. Now, every state has a different foreclosure time frame and has reacted a little bit differently to COVID. So it's kind of the domino effect in the states that have a little longer foreclosure time frame. It'll take a little bit longer for that stuff to hit the books. The market, shorter foreclosure states will have a little bit faster impact. So it's kind of that domino effect starting off in the short state, going to longer states. It's going to take a while. When I think back to what happened in 2008, 9, and 10, us in the note space, we always said it'd be a three to five year process. Well, it was almost, yeah, it was eight years process of that. Who knows if I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be here with you. I'd be in Vegas. <laughs> but looking at what's going on and, and looking at history, I really think the next 24 to 36 months would be the time to make hay. Yeah. So we close notes.com. Is that something that I can go and 
and invest with you? Or how does it work with your company? You're buying notes all the time. Are you? Do you have a fund? How do you? Uh, how how yeah, do you guys do work with you? People go to email me at scott at weclosenotes.com. You can go to the website, check out our different training, our different classes, our podcast. We talk about that because we do teach investors how to do that. But we've been buying for continue to buy for ourselves as well. Like I just made an offer, 160 assets, like I said. Get ready to close another level. So it's always, we have different opportunities. Our fund is in the final phases being wrapped up. We're excited about that. We expect a January 1st kickoff for that to take advantage of the opportunities. So reach out to me. Glad to jump on a phone call, talk about it and see if you're a fit. Not everybody's a fit and that's okay. Yeah. Some people want to be a little bit more passive. It's, that's totally fine. It's totally fine. But we love what we do. And like I said, everybody's in the note space. <laughs> yeah, You'd rather be on the right payment stream versus the wrong payments side of the payments. So can are you mainly training people to go out and do this on their own or you're training them and then they can invest with you? Passively? We, do, we do both, Jim. Yeah. Okay, those that, perfect. Those that want to go do it themselves, great. We show you how to do it. And we still, we hold people's hands through the process as well. If you wanted, you're like, ah, I don't want to do it, I'd rather write check, invest with you guys or invest with fund. We're glad to help out, coordinate that as well, whether it's with us or students or one of the funds that we work with. Okay. Well, that's great. So the, the last question I always ask is, other than your podcast, because I will put that in the show notes, what's a great podcast that you listen to, real estate related or, or business related? I love Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. It's really good. Roland has been a mentor of mine for years, going back to 2004. Busy, yeah, he just does a great job of great interviews on there. I think he just had Kate Spade on there. He's, he's one of the big guys at Digital Marker that runs the Traffic and Conversion Summit. Also a very successful real estate agent and ex-attorney. So that's a phenomenal one. Something fun, Southern Fried True Crime. If I'm bored and sitting at the house, I'll listen to that a little bit. But yeah, those are two that I'd probably recommend the most. Of course, you got to listen to Jim's podcast or everybody else. And Jim didn't ask me to say this, but I'm going to tell you right now, while you're listening, hit that subscribe button and then hit the five-star review and leave Jim a five-star review. We all as podcasters love to hear from our audience. And you know, Jim is kicking ass and taking names week in, week out with his show, bringing on great people. So go do that. Go do that for Jim. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Scott. And you said it once, but can you give our listeners again, how do we get in touch with you if we want to talk notes? Yeah, go. You can just easy stuff is to go by weclosenotes.com. That's my main website. You can shoot me an email at scott at weclosenotes.com. If you'd like to book a call with me, hey, you can go to talkwithscottcarson.com. That's talkwithscottcarson.com. I'll take you directly to my schedule. Pick 30 minutes and I'm glad to jump on the phone and let you pick my brain or I'll pick yours. Perfect. I'm going to put all that in the show notes. This has been fantastic talking to you, Scott. I always enjoy our conversations. And, uh, we will certainly do this again. Hey, bud, thank you so much. Go out there. Everybody go out there. Kick some ass. Take some names, everybody. All right. Thanks, Scott. That was a great conversation with Scott. You know, I always like talking. I've said this before, but I always like talking to people who have had initial failure and then they kept at it. They kept going, even though they failed at the very first real estate transaction or transactions or whatever they, they failed, they picked themselves up and they dove right back into it. And I love his energy when he's telling his stories. And, you know, the courage in 2008 when everyone was selling and everyone was panicked and he just started buying notes. It took courage. I mean, it made sense. The numbers all made sense. And he just relied on the numbers and he had great success. And so that that was um, that's a powerful story. I also enjoyed his, his take on that. Everyone's in the note space. We're mostly just on the wrong side. We're the buyer rather than the lender, and he's the lender, and that's that's the side you want to be on when you're when you're trying to make money. You know, I mostly invest in the equity side of real estate, but I do invest in some note funds, and so this was a great conversation to learn more about the notes and the process and everything from the other side of the equation, the debt side. 
One thing I really do like about most of these note funds, Scott's included, is they help homeowners stay in their home. The best result for everyone is to avoid foreclosure. So the incentive is to help the homeowner. You redo their loan so they can stay in the home, they can afford it. You make money, the bank gets it off their books, and the homeowner stays in the home. It's great. You help people and you make money, and I always like that. So thank you to Scott for being on the show. We'll see you next time in left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.